Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Lucas Tsoukalis, who's here to talk about his new book, Europe's Coming of Age, which will be published next week by Polity. The European Union, says the author, is, quote, a strange vehicle, unlike any others on the roads of the world, surely not a flashy vehicle, rather slow and not easy to drive. However, it has been able to accommodate ever-increasing numbers of passengers and covered a remarkably long distance, often in adverse conditions and with accidents on the way, end quote. The EU is certainly resilient, but with the economic, societal and geopolitical challenges it faces, it has to be much more than that. It's time to grow up. In his new book, Professor Tsoukalos explains why and how. Born in Athens, he studied economics and international relations in Manchester, Bruges and Oxford, where he also taught for many years. He later became a professor of European integration at the University of Athens and at the LSE, and a visiting professor at Harvard and the College of Europe. Today, he's a professor at Sciences Po. Europe's Coming of Age is the latest of his many books on the subject, including the politics and economics of European monetary integration, what kind of Europe, and in defense of Europe, can the European project be saved? Uh, Lucas, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. Well, I'd like to start with um, the, I guess, unusual structure of the book. Uh, In the first 70 or so pages, you mix the history of European integration with a personal memoir or reminiscences. Why did you choose this approach? Well, it is unusual, if you say, as you said. Uh, I thought that I've been, I've done the European journey now for more than 50 years. And I decided to start with a rather eclectic history of European integration, sprinkled with some personal experiences, because I've been an academic, as you mentioned kindly, in several countries. I've been a policy advisor, both to presidents of the Commission and the Council, a consultant, and occasionally I've been directly involved with policymaking. So I thought that Occasionally, personal experiences may help to illustrate or strengthen a point or give it a different touch. The personal side stops when I finish with history. The logic of the book is that I want to address what I consider to be the main challenges and political choices facing Europe. A continent small, extremely diverse, shrinking in size, 
a continent that can be proud of the protection of individual freedoms, quality of democracy, inclusive societies, sustainable development, of course, with exceptions, and a continent that I believe no longer has the capacity as individual countries to protect the fundamentals, to protect our freedoms, our values, and our interests in a world characterized by growing strategic rivalry, a world in which the power balance is shifting gradually towards Asia, a world in which American hegemony is no longer a given, and in a world also in which the United States, which has been for decades the protector of last resort of Europeans, has a deeply divided society and cannot be taken for granted as a dependable partner and protector in the future, and a world also which is highly asymmetrical, not only in terms of big superpowers, but also in terms of economic concentration. When an individual European country negotiating with Google or Apple does not have much of a capacity to promote its own interests. So in that world, I believe that individual European countries, even the so-called former great powers, are no longer great powers. I mean, France, Germany, and the UK cannot, by any stretch of imagination, negotiate as equals with uh, China, also with the United States, not to mention Russia. And the only hope for Europeans to defend their freedoms, their interests, and their values is through collective action. And if I may add one small point, I mean, you talked about, I mean, you gave that quote of the sturdy, strange vehicle that is the European Union. I mean, Europeans have been engaged in a radical, I would say revolutionary political experiment for almost now seven decades. And it is about the sharing of sovereignty through common institutions and rules and uh, through long, sometimes never-ended negotiations. I know that Britain has left, which I deeply regret. After all, I spent 25 years of my life in the UK. I owe the UK a lot for what it offered me and for the lack of discrimination I felt always in the UK as a welcome foreigner, not necessarily as a fellow European. So this European Union is the only reliable instrument we have to defend our interests and values and to defend our freedom. So this is a long-winded answer to your question. No, good one, though. But uh, you, you also write um, that Ukraine, uh, quote, Ukraine was destined to become the testing ground. And I, I do wonder whether without what has happened uh, this year and before that, the pandemic, whether Europe would still be muddling along and not 
uh, not considering these these great existential issues that you've just described. It, it, do you share that view? Well, the in Russia's invasion of Ukraine started a few days before I was supposed to deliver the final manuscript for publication. And the war in Ukraine has put a final end to the post-Cold War order, as largely set by the victors, namely the West and most notably the United States. It does not change the argument of the book. It reinforces it because what I'm arguing in the book is that the European Union has had many successes, several failures. It has grown remarkably. I mean, if you think about it, look at the last 70 years. The EU starts with two small economic sectors and with six countries and now ends up with just about everything, although with different ways of deciding. And with 27 members, and the moment we give a green light, there will be more to come. I recognize that Brexit is one of the biggest failures. The other big failure of European integration until now is is lack of ability to turn soft power into hard power when required. I mean, whenever it comes to high politics, whenever it comes to matters of war and peace, Europeans individually and as members of the European Union until now have had very little to say. Now, the argument of the book, even before the invasion of Ukraine, was that in a rapidly changing, unstable and highly asymmetrical world, Europe needs to become a political adult. And political adult means to think strategically and whenever necessary, be able to use hard power. Now, this argument is, of course, very much reinforced by what is happening in Ukraine. And the war is back on the European continent. We are faced with the revisionist, aggressive Russia that feels encircled. I would be the last person on earth to deny that the West has made many mistakes in dealing with Russia. But of course, all the mistakes made by the West are not enough to excuse the decision by President Putin to launch a horrific war in Ukraine. So the war makes political adulthood for the EU more urgent. But I have to admit, also in the short term, more difficult because the Europeans are faced with now inflation, an energy crisis, possibly also a food crisis, in fragmented societies with rising nationalism, and it won't be easy. And also their military dependence on the United States has become more st- starker than ever before. 
So in, again, the summary of this long answer is Ukraine strengthens the argument of the book, but makes also the transition more demanding, if not more difficult. Yeah. I mean, this question of Europe uh, needing to consider the use of hard power, I mean, it's, I, I take it absolutely. And obviously, there's the question of capacity and, and the long-term reliance on, on the US security guarantee. But I wonder how much of this is to do with a general attitude of mind uh, across across Europe. And it, you, you refer to the European project as being, quote, a benign conspiracy of liberal elites. Uh, and I wonder whether Europe now turning to, now recognising that it has to uh, have the potential to deploy hard power is, is again, something where elites are going to move, but, but, um, but citizens will not. How do, you, how do you address that sort of societal opinion? Well, it started clearly as an elitist project, and I put it a bit provocatively, it was an elitist conspiracy, but it was really, it was a small number of people who took the initiatives. And in the beginning, they were trying to downplay the importance of those initiatives when they presented them at their national parliaments. And this lasted for several years. In fact, for several decades, European integration was based on what experts call permissive consensus, which meant that as long as you deliver the goods in terms of peace and growing prosperity, people don't ask many questions about exactly what you do in the area of the European Union. This began to change, of course, as integration expanded, deepened, as integration entered the nooks and crannies of our national systems. And this was felt more strongly in the UK than perhaps in most other countries in Europe. And it stopped being a, a true when European, the effects of European integration became increasingly divisive, or to put it differently, there was this question of winners and losers. And this became obvious in the late 1990s, and it became even more obvious in the French and Dutch referendums, which killed the Constitutional Treaty of the European Union in 2005. Uh, If you look at the alliances that killed the Constitutional Treaty in France, they have many things in common with the alliance that won the Brexit referendum in 2016. It was a combination of nationalists with losers from globalization. The way a friend of mine from LSE put it, an unholy alliance, as far as Brexit is concerned, between members of golf clubs in the English countryside with the sans-culottes of globalization in the deindustrializing areas of Northern England. Hmm. But that element was also true in France 
uh, more than 10 years earlier. So it can no longer be an elitist project and it could no longer be an elitist project for several years. Now, talking about defense, uh, what we're talking, what, I think, what I'm talking about is really the need to strengthen the European pillar of the Atlantic Alliance and to make the relationship between the two sides of the Atlantic more symmetrical. This is really what it's all about. It's not about Europe's independence, complete autonomy from the Atlantic Alliance, because this does not make any sense. But Europeans should cease being free riders on security provided essentially by the Americans. Uh, Mr. Trump, in his inimitable fashion, put it more bluntly and less diplomatically than the rest. We need to strengthen the European defense pillar, not only because military dependence has implications, but also remember that we had a very difficult experience with President Trump. And there is absolutely nothing to guarantee that we will not have a bit of the same in the years to come, given what happens in American society and the American political system. So Europeans need to become more collectively autonomous in defense as well. Yeah, it, actually, you, you have a, um, a very interesting quote towards the end of the book where you say, U.S. elections may in the longer term serve as a stronger catalyst for European unity than Russian aggression. And um, I wonder whether what you've just described there, the calculus you've described there, could be upended in two or three years if if Trump returns to power. And it will not be more of the same. I mean, Trump wanted many times to leave NATO. He, he could put the Europeans in a position where they, where they really have to grow up very, very fast indeed. Do, do, do you discount that risk? No, I do not discount it at all. And it could be Trump or his clones. And there are several of them. I mean, let us be honest. Uh, if you listen to statements made by some of senior politicians of the U.S. Republican Party, they make Mrs. Le Pen and Mrs. Meloni, who is expected to become the new prime minister of Italy, extremely moderate by comparison. Now, there is nothing to exclude that such people may come to power in two years' time in the United States. Trump was unilateralist, he was aggressive and totally undiplomatic. But this may happen again and even in worse form in the years to come. I certainly don't wish it, but I cannot exclude it if, you know, I look around or read what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. There is a serious crisis of democracy in the United States, in a United States that now has a more polarized society than it has had for a very, very long time. Now, it is true that some people on the extreme rights of European politics felt comfortable with Mr. Trump and his clones, and they may still do the same. 
but it is a question of defending also our freedoms and values. Remember that I was told, in fact, by the former U.S. ambassador to the European Union that when Trump was elected, several of his aides were phoning Brussels and asking who's going to be next. Remember that Trump was elected a few months after the Brexit referendum. So he and his uh, companions seem to be convinced that UK's exit from the European Union was only just the beginning and many other countries would follow. What happened was exactly the opposite. And Brexit united the 27. Yeah, and you make a very good point about uh, Brexit, actually, where you say uh, if only Britain had chosen early enough to engage actively. And I often wondered what would have happened if successive British governments had taken seriously alliance building inside the EU because it had many you know, potential allies on many uh, issues. Do, do you think that's something that could have worked and could have actually worked with the British political system? Well, uh, Britain's European policy, European policy being the policy towards the European project, has been a big failure, and I may put it as bluntly as that, because the UK joined the European community then and later became the European Union and saw it essentially as a transactional affair. I mean, you calculate costs and benefits. You do not, with exceptions, of course, but the predominant view in London was that the UK was meant to be in the European Union because it was better to join them than stay outside, but certainly did not share the long-term political ambitions of some Europeans. So the UK was often meant to be the person who puts the foot on the brake. Now, it worked several times. I mean, the UK exerted considerable influence on European integration. I mean, the single market is, has been very much influenced by British ideas. But when it came to the crunch, every time it came to the crunch, uh, much of the British political establishment not only did not share the ambitions, but also did not take them seriously. And the best illustration is what happened with Maastricht and the Euro. I mean, I can fully understand that Foreign Office and the UK in general considered monetary integration as a step too far. But most people in London were also convinced that this was something that was never going to happen. So people in London misjudged the intentions of their European partners, and they did that repeatedly. I believe that Maastricht and the Euro was really the turning point leading to Brexit, because after the end of the Cold War, you have an acceleration of European integration, which is linked to that, because monetary union 
was linked to German unification. That's how at least the French saw it. And it was part of a deal between Kohl and Mitterrand that you know, the deal included German unification and a stronger European Union, which would be able to accommodate and incorporate United Germany. Its European integration started like this in the 1950s and continued. Now, with the acceleration of the process, uh, British politicians, with few exceptions, of course, felt that they were no longer able or willing to follow at that pace, and they could not stop it either. And then what is what we are left with is an opt-out, and this is precisely what the UK got with Maastricht, and then got another opt-out with Schengen, and several opt-outs followed. So isolation, or relative isolation inside the European Union, became almost a self-fulfilling state of mind. And that, I believe, gradually prepared Brexit. I refer to Brexit as an accident waiting to happen in the book. And it was an accident waiting to happen for several years. It was partly the result of different perceptions and different interests, but also partly the result of misjudgments about what the other side wants or is able to do. Yes, it, it was also part of, uh, as you point, it was part of a general rise of populism that was taking place um, across Europe and globally. Um, and one of the reasons for that is this real or perceived democratic deficit in the EU, um, which you 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 describe as more, quote, the triumph of the executive branch over parliament in all member states. Um, is there a way to address this? Can it be the European Parliament or, or should it be domestic parliaments? Uh, and you point out, for example, that the, that the Danish parliament exercises quite considerable leverage over its executive. Is that a model to, to address this problem? Well, the problem of democracy is at both the national and the European level. We have a growing crisis of democracy in our increasingly fragmented societies at the national level. Look what's happening in Italy. Look what has been happening in Poland and Hungary. But look also, if I may say so, look at what has been happening in the UK, an extremely divided society, which became clear at the Brexit referendum in 2016, and perhaps reinforced even further since then. Uh, Our fragmented societies have to do with this liberal version of globalization, which produced very unequal effects and created few big winners and many losers. It has to do with immigration. It has to do also with cultural values. So there is a problem at the national level. Now, then you add the European level. Of course, there is a democratic deficit in the European Union. We've tried to deal with it through direct elections to the European Parliament and more powers to the European Parliament. I mean, both have happened. 
And it is true that every time, especially if you look at the last election to the European Parliament in 2019, it was more European election than ever. But you are giving powers to, if I may put it slightly provocatively, to a second-rate parliament, a parliament that still does not elect a government, does not have the powers of national parliaments, and also in times when power has shifted steadily from national parliaments to executives. And this is not only the result of the European Union, but it is the result of a more general trend. So the democratic problem or democratic deficit, however you like to call it in Europe, is a very big problem, not easy to address. I mean, really the big issue is, can you have democracy beyond the nation state? It's not an easy question to answer, but what is the alternative? I hear some people who say, you know, European integration has gone too far and uh, national parliaments have lost their power, much of their power because of European integration, all right, they exaggerate, but still there's an element of truth in that. So let us bring powers back to the nation state. And my answer to that is very simple and straightforward. But individual nation states in today's world are extremely constrained by, out, by their participation in global interdependence, by high-tech competition, by large asymmetries in terms of military power. So what is exactly the autonomy that a country like Austria, Greece, or even the UK can enjoy in today's world. I mean, remember, Brexit was supposed to lead to gl global Britain and a kind of unchained Britannia that would be able to decide on its own laws and regulations, free from the shackles imposed by Brussels, and free to strike great deals with big powers. Now, if we look back to what has happened in the last six years, a different picture emerges. A different picture in which there is a symmetry of power between London and Brussels, because Brexit negotiations were conducted by an increasingly united European Union on 27 and an increasingly divided United Kingdom, and guess who set the terms of the negotiation? Mm. London believed that everybody would rush to sign trade deals with this now free, independent UK. But my understanding is that, for example, the Americans are not terribly keen. And also, free trade is something that may appeal to some Brits, but many others who voted for Brexit are looking for protection, not for further liberalization. And this is perhaps a point that the present government in London may need to understand more and more. So I'm saying that all those who say that, okay, I perfectly recognize, understand that there are many weaknesses in the European project. 
Of course, there is a democratic deficit. But tell me what is the realistic alternative? Do you want Austria to start negotiating with Google? Do you want Greece to negotiate directly with Moscow or with Washington or with Beijing? And do you honestly believe that much will come out of it? So we have to find a way of strengthening democracy in a, a new form. The European Union, some people say, you know, it's a postmodern kind of empire. Well, let's try to make it more democratic and more effective in its external relations. But going back is not the answer, can never be the answer. Because even country like Germany may be big in European terms, but not big enough in global terms to be able to defend properly its interests. So you conclude that there um, there will probably be no treaty revisions to deal with these uh, uh, hurdles. But, uh, and as a result, you argue that the only way to break out of this legal and political dead end would be a decision to work outside the existing EU legal framework. Um, so I have two questions about that. First, how would that be done practically? And, and secondly, to do what? What would be the core tasks that this union within a union would, uh, would do? Now, first point to make... If you look back at the last 30 years or so, you have two things as far as the European Union is concerned. A remarkable acceleration of the process of integration to which I've already referred, Maastricht, Schengen, and many other things. At the same time, you have more and more differentiation inside the EU 27, or to put it differently, most of the big initiatives start with a smaller number of member countries. And the others decide to opt out or the different legal arrangements to do that. We started the euro with 11 currencies. There are now 19, but members of the European Union are 27. So there are a few who are outside the euro. Schengen is started, if I remember well, with five, and it now includes even non-EU countries, such as Norway. And this, I believe, is the way forward in the future for several new initiatives. It's extremely difficult to reach an agreement on major initiatives at 27. a Europe of 27 that includes, among other people, somebody like Mr. Orban as Prime Minister of Hungary. Now, therefore, let's say foreign policy, defense policy, instead of being held hostage by the Orbans of this world, I believe that members of the European Union should increasingly take initiatives with only those countries that are willing and able to do so. Now, within the treaties, there are possibilities for doing that, but not for everything. And coalitions of willing and able 
can work for some things and work less for others. I'll give you an example. Taxation. Not much has happened with taxation in the European Union for the very simple reason that taxation, decisions on taxation require unanimity. And the only way to change the treaty on taxation or anything else is through unanimity. So, deadlock. But you live in a world in which you now have a common currency for 19 countries. You have a single market where there is almost complete freedom of movement for goods, services, persons, and capital. You have a high mobility of capital and you have national tax sovereignty. Now, any economist would tell you that this combination makes absolutely no sense. It creates the conditions for unfair competition and it creates the conditions for free riders. Interestingly enough, there was a big decision reached at the global level for a minimum of 15% rate of taxation for high-tech multinationals. That was an initiative taken by President Biden. All the efforts made by the French, the Germans, the Commission, and everybody else within the EU had failed until then. And it was only when the Americans joined the game with a different president, of course, not with President Trump, that things began to move, which was also a way of bringing Europeans a bit down to earth, namely that everybody's equal, but some are a bit more equal than others. Now, so I believe that there are areas in which, and I put the emphasis on foreign policy and defense, where Europeans need to move ahead. And if it is not possible with 27, let's do it with those who are able and willing to join and others, as long as you leave the door open for others to join later. Now, as far as changes of the treaties are concerned, this is a much taller order because hardly anybody in different 27 national capitals is prepared to even entertain the possibility of another treaty revision because they still remember what happened with the Constitutional Treaty. Remember, with treaty revisions, you will have a very long intergovernmental negotiation. You will draft a treaty that will then be has have to be ratified by now 27 national parliaments. And not only that, but European affairs, especially revisions of the treaties, have been increasingly subject to national referendums. The idea that you might get an agreement on anything, even whether now it's day or night in 27 countries in national referendums is an impossible dream. So what do you do? So you don't change the treaties. Now, is that an impossible situation? Not necessarily, but we're not. Re uh, the alternative is, and some people have entertained the idea, put forward proposals, that the only way to break the deadlock is again for a smaller group of countries to decide 
that they go for a political union. And a political union would be a treaty that is requires ratification by a majority of countries. The big difference being that the minority may decide to opt out but not stop the others from going ahead. Now, this is a radical move because that would mean Europe becoming a true political entity, a kind of state of Europe. Uh, are we ready for it? I believe not yet. Uh, but I also believe, based on experience, that integration has moved forward with initiatives coming from a smaller group of countries. If you decide to move at the pace of the slowest in an EU of 27, you will simply not move. And fortunately or unfortunately, the rest of the world keeps moving and fast and not always in a pleasant way. That's a, that's a good place to end. Um, so as usual, because this is a podcast channel about books and for book readers, um, I've asked my guest to recommend two books, one from his field and one personal choice. So, uh, Lucas, what have you chosen? Well, I would recommend two classics. Uh, one is The Globalization Paradox by Danny Roderick, because he was the first one who highlighted the difficult dilemma faced by governments in today's increasingly globalizing world. Namely, you need to choose between global markets, sovereignty and democracy. You can only have a combination of two out of three. So that remains still, I think, very pertinent comment and idea. And the second is the book by Branko Milanovic, Capitalism Alone. Now, Milanovic is well known as one of the world's experts on inequalities. He wrote this remarkable book in which he highlights the triumph of global capitalism, but also a triumph of global capitalism that goes increasingly hand in hand with less legitimacy of the capitalist system within developed countries. And both books really highlight key issues facing our societies today. Thank you. Uh, they haven't been chosen before. So uh, today I've been talking to Lucas Tukalis about Europe's Coming of Age, published by Polity. Lucas, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me.